Our sermon today is taken from James chapter 4, verse 1 to 10. This is the word of God. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Thus says the Lord. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Joe Bynum, and um, I'm one of the pastors here at CCC. Welcome. Uh, it's so nice to be with you guys here today on this Lord's Day. Let me pray for us um, before we begin our, our sermon. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the, uh, the power, Lord, that the spirit has. And we pray that you would illuminate our minds, Lord, that we may understand uh, the depth and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're currently in the book of James, in James chapter 4. And I, I want to admit at the very beginning that this is a very difficult passage for me to preach on as it touches on some very difficult subjects for me myself. Um, it's also very convicting for me personally as I find myself falling so short in many ways in my Christian life, uh, just like everyone else here. With that being said, James began this chapter with a very important question for us. And the question that James asks us is about the origin or cause of our conflicts, of our fighting. In verse 1 he says, what is the cause or of quarrels and fights among you? In other words, what is the very source of all the quarreling and fighting amongst Christians, amongst both you and amongst me? Well, in verse 2, James gives us the answer. Is it not your passions that are at war within you, your passions that wage war in your members? You see, according to James, the source of our conflicts the source of all human conflicts of our, is our passions, our desires. And the concept of passions or desires have reference to the heart. Has reference to the heart. So in essence, what James is telling us is that the source of conflicts between believers has to do with the sin that lies in their hearts. Conflict itself is a problem of the heart. 
And notice how James uses the terms passions as it relates to believers, those who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, those whose nature has been changed or renewed into the image of God. At the end of verse 1, he describes the passions of believers as being at war within them, right? This is how we know that he's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers because unbelievers don't have this problem. In other words, James is saying that Christians are those who have this internal conflict going on all the time within them. They're at war with themselves, at war with their very own natures. We as Christians are truly never at peace with our sinful passions that wage war against the Spirit of God that is within us. And the conflict is a conflict between the flesh and the spirit, between the old nature and the new nature that was implanted in us when we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And again, this is not true of non-Christians. They are enslaved to sin and totally at peace with it, totally at peace with their sin and with themselves. Now, the problem is that as Christians, we ourselves still have much of our old nature that remains in us, even after we are converted, right? And this was true of the Christians whom James was addressing. Even though they had become believers, they still were wrestling with their fallen human nature and struggling to mortify the desires of the flesh, to put to, put to, put to death the old man, the sin nature that was within them. To take self off the throne so that they may live their lives forever to the glory of God. And so James's goal in chapter 4 is to give believers some practical advice on how to resolve conflicts. Conflicts between brothers and sisters in Christ. Conflicts that arise within the church because of sin, because of our passions, our desires. Because as Christians, we are those who still have much remaining indwelling sin. Now, with that in mind, we'll examine our passage under three headings, under three headings. In order to resolve conflicts, Christians must first examine their hearts verses 1 through 3. Second, in order to resolve conflicts, Christians must not befriend the world, verses 4 through 6. Third, in order to resolve conflicts, Christians must submit to God, verses 7 through 10. Examine our hearts, not befriend the world, and submit to God. But first, Christians must examine their hearts. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now the word desire here means to long for, to covet, to lust after something, or to set one's heart upon something. 
And that something can be something good or something evil. Now, I want to make, be perfectly clear that desire itself is not a sin. James tells us at the end of verse 3 that the motive, though, behind the desires of the Christian is that he was addressing was their appetites and lust. In other words, their desires were disordered and not properly regulated by the word of God. And that's when desire becomes a sin. Their desires were disordered and not properly regulated by the word of God. As one author put it so well, he said, the evil in our desires often lies not in what we want, but in the fact that we want it too much, right? The evil in our desires lies not in what we want, but in the fact that we want it too much. You see what he's saying, don't you? That desires in and of themselves are not necessarily bad. God gave us desires. It's when our desires go astray, when we lust after something so very desperately that they become bad, they become disordered. When we tell ourselves that, uh, I can't be happy unless I have X, Y, and Z. Can't be happy unless I have a good spouse. Can't be happy unless I have good children, good job, good education, great reputation. Can't be happy until I get respect, until I attain a certain amount of wealth, power, and social status, and so on. Whatever it is, desires for good things like that can become sinful when we ourselves are so very desperate for them, when we lust after them, set our hearts upon them. And according to James, the reasons that the Christians he addressed failed to receive the things that they asked for from God in prayer was primarily because they were motivated by their own disordered desires rather than the will of God. Why? Why? Why didn't they receive the things they asked for? Well, they were going to spend them and waste them and squander them on their passions. You see that? James' point in verse 2 is that the very essence of all human conflicts lies within the heart, within our passions. So what does all this really mean? What is James trying to tell us? How can we benefit from it? Well, one thing is that the next time you or I or Christians in general have conflicts or arguments, instead of looking at our environment or our circumstances, or other people as the source of our problems, we should first look inward in our very own hearts and ask ourselves, what role did our disordered desires and passions play in the situation? How have we contributed to the problem? You know, Arguments between two people usually take the form of one person blaming the other, right? We dig in our heels and accuse the other person of being the cause of the problem. It's his fault. It's her fault. He's the problem. We even recruit other people to take sides in the matter so that we can reinforce our own beliefs that we were right all along, right? We get people on our side. But according to James... The root cause of all arguments between sinners is not the other person. 
nor the difficult circumstances or situations that we find ourselves in, but our very own unregulated passions. Now, if that sounds rather simplistic to you, remember that Jesus himself dealt with difficult people all the time and even found himself in many different and difficult circumstances and situations, and yet Jesus never contributed to the problem because he was not led by his passions. He never put his desires first, but always subjected himself to the will of God in every situation. Now, perhaps you're here today and you're currently engaged in an argument or a conflict with someone else and you're thinking, wait a minute, I understand about Jesus, but James just doesn't understand the, the, the situation that I'm going through. He doesn't understand the conflict that I'm involved in. I didn't start it. I really didn't. It's not my fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my friend's or co-worker's fault. James has no idea of the type of situation that I'm dealing with, that I have to deal with on a daily basis. Well, you might be right. All I know is that whenever I have a conflict with my wife or anyone else, I have yet to be 100% right in the situation. <laughs> Even if I feel that I am, deep down inside, I know that like, that's not true. It's not true. So James is saying that the very first step in resolving conflicts with other people is to correctly identify the source of it, to look within our own hearts and to see that our own desires played a large part in the conflict. Because by definition, an argument or a conflict is always, always two-sided. Once we do that, we can stop blaming other people, right? And deal with our own sin first. And then we can begin to pray for the other person and let God deal with him or with her. So James' first point is that we examine our hearts because the very essence of all human conflict, of our conflicts, of you and my conflicts, lies within our hearts. But James doesn't stop there. He continues by warning us of the inability of sin, of our sin, to bring genuine satisfaction. The inability of sin to bring genuine satisfaction. Look at verse 2 and 3. You do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. You see, you see what it means is that sin not only affects our prayer life before God, right, where we become lazy, apathetic, and indifferent to prayer, but sin also never truly delivers on its promises, right? It never truly, truly gives us what it promises us, right? Think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, how they were promised that they would be genuinely fulfilled and satisfied if they pursued their desires apart from God, that they would even be like God himself. But when they yielded to their desires, what happened? They fell from a state of happiness and holiness. They fell from a state of being truly fulfilled and satisfied in God into a state of misery, sin, 
and bondage. So we read, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate of it. You see what she did, don't you? She saw, she desired, and she took apart from the will of God. Apart from consulting him through prayer. And she forever regretted the consequences of it. You see that? Sin makes Eve and you and me promises that it never truly keeps. And while there may be some momentary pleasure or delight, some temporary delight, when we indulge our sinful flesh, in the long run, the consequences far outweigh the benefits, right? You know, in one sense, feeding our sinful desires is like getting hooked on drugs. At first, you feel this, this high, and then all of your problems seem to just disappear. But then you get hooked, and then the highs don't feel the same anymore. And you end up searching for that feeling that you felt the very first time until you fall further and further into bondage, slavery, and misery until your sin ultimately destroys you. So the point that James is trying to make is that true and lasting and eternal pleasure can be found only in God, who himself is the fountain of all living water. And any pleasure that the world offers us apart from God will not only not satisfy, but it will ultimately lead to emptiness, unfulfillment, guilt, shame, and destruction. So James is saying that if we come to God in this way, if we come to God without examining our hearts, if we come to God with the wrong motives, seeking to satisfy the desires of our sinful nature, we will never try and find true and genuine satisfaction. Because mere physical and temporary pleasures can never truly satisfy the soul, right? And thankfully, thankfully, when we come to God in this way, in a sinful way, asking for things that are not healthy for us, things that lead us into slavery and into bondage, thankfully, in mercy, God does not give us what we ask for in prayer. Christians must examine their hearts, examine our hearts. James' next point is that Christians must not befriend the world. Christians must not befriend the world. Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is... To no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, here James begins by announcing the awful consequence 
of befriending the world. Shockingly, James refers to his audience. He refers to Christians as adulteresses, right? So the consequences of befriending the world is adultery, spiritual adultery. And you might be wondering why James is being so harsh towards Christians, towards believers, towards those who belong to the church of Christ. Well, the reason is because he wants to shake them from their complacency, from being at ease with their spiritual condition. In other words, he wants us to see the magnitude of our sins before a holy and righteous God. He wanted the Christians in his day to see how they were playing politics in the church, how they were attacking one another and rallying other people to their cause, how they were arguing, fighting, and quarreling and committing murder in a spiritual sense before God through their anger towards their brothers and sisters in Christ. And when Christians regularly engage in conflicts brought about by anger, Pride, envy, and jealousy, our actions show more of a kinship with the wisdom of the world than with the wisdom of God. Our actions show a conformity to the world's way of thinking about things, the world's way of acting and resolving problems that may arise. And this kind of friendly adaptation to the wisdom of the world is the very essence of spiritual idolatry that James is talking about in our passage. Why? Why is that so? Well, it's because as believers, you and I, as Christians, are those who've been called out of the world. We've been called to be strangers and sojourners here on earth. We've been called out of darkness and into the glorious light of the knowledge of the Lord himself through, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, we belong to Christ. We are his bride. We are his body. We are his church. Can you imagine how you'd feel as a husband or a wife if your spouse came home and said, you know what? I, 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 I can't stop thinking about this other person. I know we're married, but I'm seeing this other person. And I really love spending time with them. I just, I, I can't keep my mind off them. You know, the truth is that I, I just love this person more than I love you. How awful would that be, right? How terrible would that make us feel? See, no, when you, when you get married, you vow to forsake all other lovers and to be devoted exclusively to your spouse. How would you feel as a sibling if, you had a, if your parents loved your brother or your sister more than you and treated them better than they treat you? Wouldn't that be awful? Wouldn't that make you feel awful? Wouldn't that make you feel jealous? Of course. You see, as Christians, we're united to Christ through faith. We belong exclusively to God. So when we befriend the world, we commit spiritual adultery against God. You see, when we befriend the world, what we're really saying to God 
is, you know, God, I'm sorry, but I like these other lovers better than, better than you. I know I'm a Christian. I know we're married in a certain sense, but I've been seeing this other lover on the side, and I, I just can't help it. Can't stop thinking about it. I can't keep it off my mind. You know, and you, you might remember that this was exactly the sin of the Israelites whom God brought out of Egypt by the hand of Moses. You see, even though God was a faithful husband to them in delivering them from slavery and their bondage in Egypt and destroying their enemies at the Red Sea and choosing them to be a people for his very own possession, their time in the wilderness proved that their hearts were really far from God. And they longed to return to their first love, to the idols that they served in Egypt. They were guilty of spiritual adultery. And so because of their idolatry, God himself was not pleased with them. And he overthrew them in the, in the wilderness. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that these things happened to them as examples for you and me. That we might not desire evil as they did and not be idolaters as some of them were. So James is telling us that if you belong to Christ, you are married to him. And just as marital adultery is a very serious and egregious sin, spiritual adultery is even far worse. Because spiritual adultery is indifference to the very mercy, grace, and love of God that saved us and redeemed us from our sin. Now that James has shown us the consequences of befriending the world, he continues on by explaining to us the reasons why Christians should not befriend the world, right? He doesn't just leave us there. He goes on and says in verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, the word for friendship here refers to the wisdom, customs, values, and practices of the evil world system as a whole, right? So, as Christians, when we act, live, and behave according to the principles of earthly wisdom... We start to then compromise our Christian values, and we become friends with the world and enemies with God. Why? Because when we befriend the world, we turn away from God and provoke him to jealousy. You remember King Solomon in the Old Testament, how he was a godly man, a very wise man, more wiser than anyone on the earth in his day, and yet toward the end of his life. Solomon was seduced into serving other gods. And he was seduced into serving other gods uh, at the behest of his many wives that he had. And so he was tempted to worship other gods. And therefore, he provoked God to jealousy because God's spirit was in him. And he belonged to God. He committed spiritual adultery. And John Calvin says, so great is the disagreement between the world and God that as much as anyone inclines to the world, 
so much he alienates himself from God. You see that? As much as anyone inclines to the world, so much he alienates himself from God. And when a Christian befriends the world, it's not just something that happens overnight, right? It takes time. It's a very slow, seductive, and methodical process. It's our thinking, our behavior, and our outlook on life begins to look more and more like the world rather than the Bible. And James says that a Christian who is friendly with the world is at enmity with God. Now, the word enmity in the Greek means hostility or opposition, right? So according to James, when Christians befriend the world, when they embrace the world's system, the world's wisdom, customs, and values, he or she is behaving in opposition to God, whether they intend to or not. And what might friendship with the world look like for believers? What might friendship with the world look like for you and for me? Well, friendship with the world looks like receiving rather than giving. Friendship with the world looks like receiving rather than giving. What do I mean by that? Well, you might have heard the old saying, it's better to give than to receive. Well, they should have put that saying in the Bible. I think it's, it's true. It's certainly true for Christians, especially as it relates to living in an unfallen and sinful world. You see, as Christians, we're called to be givers to the world and not receivers. That means we may listen to and counsel people in our lives who don't know the Lord, who don't know Jesus Christ. We may even spend time with them and even enjoy their company, befriending them in love with hopes of winning them to Christ, right? But we are not to receive their counsel in matters of faith, in matters of life, and in matters of practice. We are not. We must not open our hearts to their influence in spiritual matters. If we do, we will most definitely go astray in our hearts. You see, we are called to serve, to counsel, and to love non-Christians. But we must be careful in so doing to protect our own hearts, to guard ourselves from entering into a friendship that is too intimate a friendship that puts us in danger of being molded or shaped by those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just gave you an example of King Solomon in the Bible, of what happens when you do that. And so as Christians, we must be givers to the world and not receivers. So in order to resolve conflicts, Christians must examine their hearts they must not befriend the world. And lastly, they must submit to God. They must submit to God. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, the word submit here means to put yourself in rank under, right? Put yourself in rank under something or someone. It implies that there is a hierarchy of authority, a hierarchy of authority that God himself has established in the world. 
it has reference in the Bible to our obligation as Christians to submit to government, to submit to the elders in the church, for slaves to commit, submit to their masters, and so on. In reference to uh, God, what James is telling Christians is stop embracing the wisdom, customs, and values of the world and submit yourselves to God and to rank yourselves under God's authority. And that's necessary in order for you to resist the devil. So submit yourselves to God and resist the devil are both necessary. How so? Well, the Greek word for resist means to stand against or to oppose. Paul uses the same term in Ephesians in reference to spiritual warfare. There he says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. You see, Paul here is saying the same thing as James. Taking up the full armor of God is absolutely necessary for a Christian to resist the evil day. Just as James is saying, submitting to God is absolutely necessary for the Christian to resist the devil. Now, what I don't think James is saying is that the devil himself is personally present at all times with respect to our trials and temptations in this life. He is not. What he is implying is that from a spiritual perspective, with respect to spiritual warfare, the devil is the ruler of this present world. He is the prince of power, the Bible describes him, of the air, who uses the wisdom, the customs, and values of this world in order to seduce believers into sin. You see, these things, wisdom, the wisdom of the world, the culture, the values, these things are tools in the hands of the devil that he uses for his trade. They are a part of the devil's arsenal that he uses to deceive Christians, to lead us astray from following Christ, to turn us from the path of life. And so what James is telling us that is, if you want to resist the devil, as well as all the tools that he employs to lead you astray, submit yourselves to God. Submit to his authority. Submit to his word in both your thinking and in your doing. In your hearts, as well as in your minds and actions. And the devil will therefore flee from you. And you'll notice in verses 8 through 10, James goes on in great detail in order to show us what submission to God looks like, right? He doesn't just leave us there. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now you'll remember that the Christians that James were, was confronting had become friends with the world, right? They had embraced the wisdom, customs, and values of the world. They were finding joy and pleasure in things that other than God and had unwittingly befriended God's enemies. And what they desperately needed, therefore, was to repent to turn to God in humble repentance and to forsake the world. And so James 
is using the language of an Old Testament prophet to call them to repentance, right? To urge them to repentance, to cleanse their hands, to purify their hearts, to mourn and to weep. In other words, he's urging them to humble themselves in genuine repentance before God. To repent of their quarreling, of their arguing, of their worldliness. To repent of their sin. And according to James, true repentance is not only accepting full responsibility for our sins before God. But it also includes an element of mourning. Of mourning how our sins have offended a holy and righteous God. Of mourning how we have disgraced his holy name by failing to love our neighbors, by failing to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So James tells us to humble ourselves before the Lord, and he, that is God, will exalt us. What does it mean to be exalted by God? Well, to be exalted by God is for him to lift up our spirits from the shame and the guilt of sin and to give us true joy, genuine joy, lasting joy, the kind of joy It comes by way of having our sins forgiven through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And doesn't doesn't that sound familiar to you? This theme of humility and exaltation in the Bible. You see, Philippians, in Philippians, Paul teaches basically the same message as James. There he tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. To count others as more important than ourselves. To look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then, he seeks to further persuade us by giving us and saying to us that the ultimate example of humility was the humility and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 6. The Lord Jesus Christ, who, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, humility... And exaltation is not only an example for us to follow as Christians, but it's also the very heart and soul of the gospel itself. May we be of the same mind as our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and humble ourselves before God. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we... You have given us the ability to follow his example, to humble ourselves, O Lord, of our sin, to come before you and confess our sins and repent of them, to forsake them, to get back on the path of life, of following Christ. We thank you, Lord, that it is not through our own works, Lord, that we are saved, but through the life and merit and works of Jesus Christ. 
We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to live faithfully, to honor your name, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to walk humbly before you, that we may glorify you on earth. We thank you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.